Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hello everyone and welcome to Bouncing Back, the personal resilience science insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I am your host, Joanna. Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Bouncing Back. And on this show, we unpack everything to do with personal resilience and how you can deal with things that life throws your way. I'm your host, Joanna, and today we're going to be demystifying menopause and getting a better understanding of the transition. I'm personally so keen to get into this. I feel like it's an age-related topic that we don't talk about enough and getting more conversations surrounding it is so important. Regardless of if you're a woman or not, I think it's it's very important to understand this stage of life. So to help me do that, I'm joined by Carmen Brown today. Carmen is an obstetrician and gynecologist and has 20 years of clinical experience in America, New Zealand and Australia. As a woman who wears many hats, Carmen also ran a private gynecology practice in Melbourne and currently she is a clinical director of women's health at a regional hospital in Victoria. Hi Carmen, how are you today? me today. I appreciate it and I'm looking forward to this topic. No worries. I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Um, Before we get into things, would you like to tell us a bit more about who you are and what it is you do? Uh, Sure. So um, as you alluded to, uh, a lot of different hats. So uh, my main role, of course, I guess would be uh, mom and wife. Uh, So I have a wonderful husband that I'm here with in Australia. He's also American. Um, and I have a beautiful little boy um, who is on the spectrum. So my little one um, is autistic. Uh, so that's one of the things I think that kind of defines me. I am also known as autism doctor mom uh, because that's another kind of area I've been really uh, passionate about uh, since my own little one got his diagnosis. Um, I am the clinical director of women's health at a regional hospital. And one of the things I am passionate about is uh, regional and rural medicine. Um, I believe that... Um, uh, women and families, no matter where they live, um, should have access to good quality health care. And so that's one of the things I've been working on for the last um, probably about 11 or 12 years of my career now, uh, working in rural and regional medicine. So, um, yeah, that's, that's me. Beautiful. I feel like we're in such great hands to talk about today's topic. Amazing. So I'd like to jump into a section we like to call, have you met Carmen? So I'll just ask you some little personal get to know you questions. So my first one for you is, do you have a favorite book or anything you're reading at the moment? Um, So I am a part of a book club and it's been really nice because I've gotten a chance to read some books that I probably wouldn't normally pick up. Uh, One of my favorite ones, interesting enough, um, is not one I read in book club, but something that really taught me a lot about Australia. And it's a book by um, someone called Bill Bryson. Um, And he wrote a book called In a Sunburned Country. And it was all about his travels throughout Australia. And I read that probably about 15 years ago before I even came here. And it was just such a beautiful and funny and really well-written book. Um, And it taught me a lot about the country before I even moved here. So I think that would be like one of my faves. Yeah, that sounds really awesome. I love reading books about different places. I feel like that's one of the best ways to get to know about a new place. So exactly, exactly. Uh, Beautiful. So do you like movies? Yes, I do. Um, I'm an old movie buff head. Like I love, love, love like movies from like the 80s. That's like my favorite. I'm a John Hughes like fan. So Sweet 16 16 Candles, um, (gasps) Pretty in Pink, Breakfast Club. Those are like my favorites. Um, my ultimate favorite, I would probably have to say, is Steel Magnolias. Um, love that movie. I could probably quote it all the way through. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, definitely love my 80s movies. 
No, they're great. I love Sixteen Candles so much. So good. <laughs> Such a good movie. Would you be able to tell us if you're into podcasts at all, if you're listening to anything at the moment? Um, I actually had a really long commute um, back and forth to one of my regional jobs, and I started listening to a Mandarin language podcast, uh, which I actually finished um, all the way into intermediate level, uh, which was a really good use of time. Uh, so that's kind of my podcasting. Uh, I've also, I like decluttering podcasts, which is a very random thing to listen to. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, This American Life, that's another good one because they have a lot of varied topics. So I like those. Awesome. Would you be able to say anything in Mandarin for us? Um, of course, you're going to put me <laughs> I'm putting you on the spot. I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, wow, I am impressed. That's so good. I took Mandarin in like primary school for like four or five years and I can only say ni hao in the most Australian accent possible. Oh, so I'm not going to say anything else. I hope no one judges me based on my pronunciation because that was totally like on the spot. I should do better than this. But that's okay. I hope my, I hope my uh, instructor isn't listening. Well, I am impressed to say the least. That was amazing. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, oh, there we go. I don't know what you just said, but I'm guessing you. you said like, "Thank you." There we go. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, do you have a famous role model at all? Yikes! That's a hard one. Um, it is a hard one. It good. could be like anyone in your life that you find inspirational, even. Well, I think everyone's going to say something like, oh, you're, you know, your mom or something yeah. like that. But um, and, and my mom is an amazing she is an amazing role model. Like she's the one that taught me how to be like a selfless mother. Um, but I think just in general, the role model thing is so hard because we're holding, you know, humans who are flawed up to like this pedestal. And it's I don't think it's fair to them or to you because then you think that they're perfect and then they're not perfect. And then if they have uh, failure, it makes them feel like they let other people down. So I think this is vicious cycle. Um, yeah. I just think that instead of saying role models is someone that um, you find um, inspirational or something that they have done that has been something that you would aspire to per se. So I think that's how I kind of hold it. So I think my mom is an amazing um, inspiration to me, uh, showing me, you know, the selfless side of mothering and how to love unconditionally. Um, I think, uh, I would say my husband, believe it or not, we're this, we're, you know, we're not, we're the same age basically, but I would say he's a role model cause he's taught me how to be flexible. Um, and I've learned a lot from him over these like almost 20, almost 30 years together. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I would choose. Well, let's jump straight into our interview questions. So my first one for you is why is resilience important in our life? Um, I think the thing is, is with, with humans right now, I think we're in a very peculiar space and that we can't, we always have access to each other and we're always on. We don't get a lot of off time. And I think that it shapes and changes the way we look at resilience and what that means. Um, maybe 30, 40 years ago, resilience is, you know, um, you know, having to work and juggle, you know, uh, external things like family. But now there's so much more to it. And so I think with resilience now, we have to redefine that. And I believe that part of resilience now is learning how to unplug and extract yourself um, from the world as it is. Um, and I think that makes it so much harder because you're always, um, you're always so accessible to everyone, whether it be social media, email, what have you. And I think with personal resilience now is understanding the ability to unplug um, and get away from that. And so having a personal resilience is understanding um, what that means for you, um, getting away, unplugging, um, being um, someone that you cannot find. <laughs> so I think that's what's important. Yeah, that's a beautiful definition. I've personally never viewed it that way, but I love this idea of unplugging. I feel like our world is so busy and we're all so extremely busy these days. And I feel like the idea of being still and not doing anything is like really hard to do. Like I feel like everyone constantly feels like they need to be doing things like me included, like the idea of having downtime and actually just sitting doing nothing is scary for me. And it's 
so interesting how the world has evolved that way. Yes, yes, yes. And I think that's part of the reason why we feel stressed differently now. Um, is it, you just don't have that ability to have that downtime like we used to. Like even like even your watch, you know, goes off and tells you your texts and your emails that are comes through. So um, I I feel that we created a space where we never ever get time to unplug and be away. And because we're expected to always be present um, and be a part of, you know, the social media, your emails or, you know, um, having someone to be able to text you whenever they want, um, it creates expectations that are very hard to live up to. Um, then that means you feel like you failed or you're not, you know, living up to some type of role. So it's, it's, it's very difficult. I think that's part of the reason why we have so much more anxiety in our lives is because we feel like we're constantly letting someone down if we're not always accessible or doing something. Yeah, 100%. I feel like the idea of notifications is a big thing. Like you see something, you need to respond or you need to open it. And I sometimes find myself even just like going on my phone for no reason. It's like my mind is programmed to always want to be finding something to do or occupy myself with, which is yes. so interesting to me. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'm glad we unpacked that. I feel like that's a whole other thing we could it talk is. about as well, but let's get back on track. And I'd like to ask you um, how menopause affects a woman's body and hormonal levels. So interesting that I swear I could probably do like a two hour lecture on that one. But I think the biggest thing is, is first of all, understanding that menopause is a transition. It's a natural and normal part of our lives um, as as women. Um, and that we're, you know, I always tell patients, you know, we're born with all the little eggs we'll ever have, uh, which help produce our hormones. And at a certain point, we're all predestined to kind of run out of those. And that's when those symptoms start. And so I think the very first thing and most important thing to unpack is that menopause is not a bad thing. It's a normal, natural transition. However, going back to what we chatted about before is how our, our lives have changed, is that, you know, this isn't 100 years ago. We're no, no longer agrarian lifestyles, and we are vibrant people that have jobs and families and friends and responsibilities that we still want to be a part of. And sometimes the symptoms of menopause can significantly debilitate us. Um, it affects our interpersonal relationships and how we feel at work and with friends and family. And so having ways to manage menopause, I think, is the newer space um, because um, society is different and because we are so much integrated as far as a part of society as women now. Um, I think it's a really important space to understand, demystify and also talk about. It's not an embarrassing thing. It's a natural thing that we all go through. Um, but it does affect us in a lot of different ways, not only physically, but mentally. So those lower levels of estrogen um, affect our brains. We have brain fog and forgetfulness. It affects our skin. It affects um, our joints. Um, it's just amazing how the actual menopause transition can affect a woman. And because we always um, associate with just hot flashes and night sweats, uh, when women have other symptoms, they just kind of think that, you know, am I crazy? Like, that's not what I'm experiencing is, it, you know, my joints are achy or I have dry, itchy, crawly skin or, you know, I'm having a little bit of issue with incontinence. Um, I think because we're so tunnel visioned and discussing in the context of just hot flashes and night sweats, that's the only thing we associate menopause with. But it's so much more. So it can affect us literally from top to bottom. Yeah. And I feel like especially growing up and watching popular culture like movies, TV shows, they often like portray menopause as this big, scary, awful thing. And it's like, oh, I'm going into menopause. Oh, this is so terrible. Is there something to fear or do we need to sort of like destigmatize that we idea? We definitely need to destigmatize it. And um, I, I don't know why it's been, um, like you said, in the culture, like a, a negative connotation, because in some other cultures, it's actually a sign of moving into the next phase of womanhood and elderhood, uh, which I think is a really beautiful way to look at it. Now that you have reached a certain pinnacle of life, you're now an elder, you have additional wisdom, and that's something that you can impart onto others. So I think that's a kind of really nice way of looking at it. Um, but I think the problem is the stigma associated with it has been so negative for so long that it is something that nobody wants to go through. You know, everyone 
doesn't want to be associated with being old and dried up and everything. And that's not, it's not what menopause is at all. Um, if you look at some developed countries, uh, our lifespan as women can be up into the 80s. So if menopause is at 50, this you have still another 30 years of life uh, from 50 to 80. And so it's not the end. If anything, it's the transition to a different um, beginning. Yeah, amazing. And I feel like if we compare it to a woman receiving her first menstrual cycle, like I feel exactly. like there's a lot of negative like connotations around that, but it's also you entering a new phase of your life. Exactly. So exactly. it can be likened to that, I guess, would you say? I definitely agree. Um, I, I feel that probably over the last like 20 years, even um, first menstrual cycles have changed with, you know, having, you know, period parties. Uh, I don't yeah. know if you've heard about those, but they've had these like coming of age parties. And if you look at it culturally, that's exactly what certain types of, um, parties and celebrations were around is uh, becoming a woman or coming of womanhood. So we have the quinceaneras in um, Latin American culture and um, I believe Sari parties uh, for yeah. some, of my, um, some of my family and friends um, from Southeast Asia. So there's always been that kind of cultural change and shift um, becoming a woman. But there should be no nothing different as far as with the menopause transition. And in fact, a lot of other cultures look at it as um, going into a new phase of um, elderhood, which I think is a very cool way of looking at it. I mean, now you're an elder and you have all this amazing wisdom that you can impart onto younger generations. So, I mean, I think it's cool. I love the idea of being an elder. I think that's a very nice transition. Uh, so I think there's different ways to look at it. And maybe when we change that um, thought process, then it would make people less, I guess, worried about that next transition. 100%. I feel like perspective is so important. And I guess it can be even just said as having just a more positive outlook on these things in life. Like not everything exactly. is as bad as it sounds. And we're so quick to judge things and make them really terrible before actually getting to know how beautiful yes. it can be. Yes, exactly. I think it's all about how you put it out there. Um, is showing some positives around it instead of like framing it only in a negative way. So I think it's all about how you kind of put it out there. So what are some of the most common symptoms when it comes to this transition? So a lot of women don't realize that we have estrogen receptors throughout our bodies. So that means you have them in your brain, your skin, um, and most importantly, of course, in the sex organs. So having those lower levels of estrogen can affect us in a lot of different ways. Um, a lot of women don't even realize that some of the symptoms um, can be associated with mood changes. So um, anxiety, irritability, depression, um, difficulty with coping. Uh, we also have brain fog and just forgetfulness, uh, which I can, I can totally attest can be very stressful. <laughs> uh, but then we, of course, have other things that occur where you can have like dry, itchy, crawly skin or joint aches and pains. Um, but then more importantly is things that can affect um, your interpersonal relationships. So um, things like uh, dry vagina or um, some urinary incontinence, um, those are also associated with those lower levels of estrogen. So I think that most women are always thinking it's just straight hot flashes and night sweats. But if they don't have those, they kind of feel like, you know, something's wrong with me. Why am I having these other symptoms? Is something else wrong? But um, knowing and making sure women understand the different symptoms that can be associated with menopause, that's a really important part of the education that we're trying to get out there, understanding exactly what's happening to their bodies. For sure. And having accessibility to this information must be crucial. Exactly. I think that's one of the great spaces now is that once again, we're destigmatizing discussing menopause. And so there's so much information out now. Um, with menopause care and the transition. Um, I think my favorite is the Australasian Menopause um, Society. So um, they have amazing resources and have done the extra mile by translating resources and even having videos um, in Mandarin and Vietnamese, um, I think even in Dari and a couple of other um, languages, so making sure that women in different um, areas um, different cultures, different languages can understand and access that information. So um, it's also about making sure GPs feel empowered and comfortable with discussing this with patients. So 
definitely trying to get that education out there. Yeah. And what would you recommend to women who might be experiencing symptoms that aren't considered, you know, the most common ones? I would say definitely have a discussion with their GP. Um, There's nothing better than a great GP. Uh, And so having that discussion with them, first of all, making sure that we're ruling out other things, um, but also um, making sure that they understand that menopause is not just the hot flashes and night sweats and that some of these other symptoms may occur. Um, And then discussing the different types of things that might be best for them as far as managing those symptoms. And I think a lot of women are reticent to talk to their GPs or their women's health specialists about it because I think they think there's just going to be the answer is drugs and medication. And that is not the case at all. Um, There's a lot of things as far as lifestyle modification, uh, changes in diet, exercise, there's so many things that you can do outside of the traditional, you know, drugs, medication, and hormones that can make a huge difference in your quality of life while going through the transition. Amazing. And what age does this typically happen around this transition? Very good question. So uh, we have population data and in Australasia, the average age is about 51. However, um, most women will start the transition years and years before that. So the biggest thing is, and the reason why I think the terminology is so confusing is by definition, menopause is 12 months with no menstrual cycle. However, what we should be saying is like the menopause transition. Some people also cause it, call it perimenopause, but those are the symptoms and everything that lead up um, to the actual cessation of the periods. So even though we use those terms like interchangeably, we're still talking about the same thing. And that's how your hormones are changing and how your body, you know, responds to that. So for a lot of women, they can actually start this as early as 45 um, or earlier. So as a gynecologist, one of the things I look at when a woman comes in and starts um, describing symptoms that can be associated with the menopause transition is I look at their age. And if a woman is sitting in front of me and she's 48 and she's telling you how her cycles have become irregular how she has, you know, insomnia, difficulty sleeping, maybe some night sweats and, you know, difficulty at coping and uh, more anxiety. My mind is immediately going to like the menopause transition. Um, And I think that's the most important thing is to look at the person, uh, look at the age, and then also listen to the symptoms because um, a lot of times it can be those women having those perimenopausal transitional changes Uh, And they don't really kind of put two and two together. Um, So definitely can start having those symptoms as early as like the uh, early 40s. And how does mental health play a role um, in this transition into menopause? That's a very good question. I think uh, one of the important things is is that uh, women um, going through the menopause transition um, can sometimes have uh, worsening symptoms, especially if they have pre-existing history of um, anxiety or depression. So some women will feel that um, that menopause transition will unmask or worsen um, prior um, history of anxiety and depression. Um, there, there is information to show that women that have a history of like um, postpartum depression uh, will sometimes have worsening symptoms as far as depression when they get to the menopause transition. But I also think it has a lot to do with supports around the woman. Um, Around this age, in their 50s, um, there's a lot of things going on. You have, you know, some cases, children ready to leave the nest, and that's a a new transition. Sometimes you have uh, changes in relationships, dissolution of marriages. Um, There's a lot of things that can, you know, go on that can significantly stress us out, Um, aging and elderly parents. So I think it's not necessarily just the hormones that are causing a person to become more anxious or depressed but it's also the stressors of life. Um, So I think we kind of have to look at it, the whole complete picture, um, but also making sure that we support those patients um, that do have issues with um, anxiety and depression and making sure that they understand that there's, you know, other alternatives available rather than just, you know, medication as far as managing those symptoms. Yeah, amazing. And I'd love to go back to when you mentioned like emotional changes and like mood swings. How do you recommend women navigate this time? Because it can be stressful, especially if it's affecting your relationships and the people you care about. Yes. Um, I I usually tell patients that you really should sit down and talk to someone like a GP 
um, or even if you have access to um, a psychologist or a counselor, because I think the most important thing is talking this out and not keeping it in. Um, the problem is, is that I think that a lot of people, once again, are embarrassed uh, that they feel depressed or anxious or irritable. But I always tell patients, if it's affecting your interpersonal relationships, then it's severe enough that you need to seek help. And help can be different ways for different people. It can be as simple as, you know, having um, a counselor or someone that you can talk to, or it could just be, you know, possibly having um, a really good GP that you can even sit down and maybe um, discuss a mental health plan with. So I just want, uh, once again, I think it goes back to destigmatizing it. And it's also not just menopause, but destigmatizing mental health care. Um, it's, there's nothing ashamed, you know, to be ashamed about if you feel like you can't cope because there's ways that we can find to help you uh, cope. Yeah, for sure. I feel like there's this massive thing surrounding weakness when you admit that you need help. And I feel like that's such a common barrier to people actually reaching out for the help that they do need. Yes, yes. And I think structuring it differently for different cultures too, because I think uh, for some of us from different cultures, um, accessing like uh, mental health care is definitely a stigma. And there's definitely ways that we could do it in a very culturally sensitive way where it's not necessarily called like mental health care, um, but it could be something like, you know, having a bunch of ladies that are in the same age range going through the same type of changes, having a yarn. Um, so I think you have to be really sensitive about how different cultures uh, look at, uh, I guess, mental health care access. Um, and structuring it in a way that's going to be more palatable and still get them that the help they need. Yeah. And along the line of like cultures, are there specific cultural or regional differences in how menopause is received and managed? Um, I do believe so. Um, I was told by um, one of my colleagues who's a um, Aboriginal auntie, so she is an elder. Um, and what her experience was is that it is uh, seen as a transition to elderhood. So that's a very positive um, in their culture, looking at that transition to the fact that you're now an elder that imparts wisdom and knowledge on younger generations. Um, so I feel that um, in some cultures and even in some places like where I'm from in the United States, it is looked at and held as an esteem um, that you are rising up to another uh, level in society and your culture, uh, allowing you to kind of give and impart wisdom onto others. So. I really think maybe having more of that, uh, I guess, feeling disseminate to other cultures, uh, making it less negative in the connotation would be a good thing for everyone. Yeah, 100%. I feel like it can be hard, though, because some are so deeply rooted in cultures that go back years and centuries and I don't know what's more than centuries, but a long time <laughs> ago. So. Yeah, it's. I think it's going to, you can't, I guess, um, changing culture, I guess, is a very um, immature way of looking at it. But I, I think that the best way of looking at it is finding a way to uh, uplift um, and make it more of an, a positive way um, within the confines of that culture uh, can actually hopefully make a, a huge difference for a woman. Yeah, for sure. And how can women empower themselves to, you know, nav navigate this process? Uh, information. Um, that is the biggest thing. Information is the key. And once again, I think one of the good things about having information at our fingertips at all times is that um, there's so many easy ways to find really good quality information about the transition. So um, whether it be through, you know, your GP, whether it be through online flyers, uh, websites, there's so many things that are available. What I do tell patients and caution them is just make sure you get your information from a really good quality source. So, um, you know, I tell people maybe not necessarily listen to like everybody's blog or look at everyone's like blog on YouTube, but maybe kind of look initially at information either through like the GP's office, um, government websites, um, those types of things. So at least that way, you know, you're getting good quality, truthful information and not just necessarily someone's kind of uh, personal experience because that may change things a bit about how that information is given. Um, but I think in one way we are lucky because there's access everywhere that gives you the information that you need. 100%. I feel like we live in such an age of misinformation and disinformation and there is this massive deluge of 
content that you could go yes. to on the internet. And it's so simple as typing in menopause in Google yes. and then reading the yes. first thing you see and being like, oh my God, I'm going to die because Google is telling me that I'm going to die now. So I think that's a very important point. I always tell patients, make sure you get your information from a, a reputable site. And so um, I always give them, you know, say, you know, you can look at the International Menopause Society or the Australasian Menopause Society or the North American Menopause Society. Just make sure you get your your information from a quality site. Um, and it's not something that's just like, once again, someone's personal vlog experience on YouTube, which yeah. is fine, too. But you just really like you said, disinformation and misinformation is ripe out there. Yeah, and I feel like a vlog here and there can be good if you want to find a way to relate to someone else's experience. Yes. And I think that the variety of resources we have online is really great. But also we have so much access to academic resources, journals. Yes. Google has a scholarly site as well. So yes, it's yes, exactly. Resource. Exactly. Totally Amazing. agree. Yeah, beautiful. Um, I love this next question. What role can men play in supporting women in their lives during this transition? Oh, that's such a good question. And I think I think this is part of the reason why so many couples have so much uh, difficulty during this time. Um, and I would actually expand it to say, um, you know, men and other partners, um, just because not all of my patients going through the change um, are in heterosexual relationships. 100%. And so sometimes you'll have um, patients that one patient is going through the transition, but the other female um, uh, person in the relationship is not going through the transition. So then you still have that same problem where they're not really understanding what you're going through at that point. Um, I think the biggest thing is, is that um, once again, it goes towards education and support. I found some really good resources online for um, partners in understanding what the menopause transition means for their, their female partner. Um, and I think the thing is, is that um, understanding what the, your partner is going through, um, understanding it from a biological standpoint, but also um, changing how um, the relationship goes. So I think the problem is, is that sexuality is a very important area in this in this space. And sometimes during the transition, women will notice their libido drops. Um, they'll sometimes notice that they have issues with um, uh, uh, vaginal lubrication and things like that can make a huge difference on um, sexual intimacy. And so having a really good relationship where they can have these open conversations and say something like, um, I don't feel the same way I used to. I think we might need to work a little bit more on, you know, foreplay or maybe uh, different ways to become intimate. Um, being comfortable in having those discussions is going to make a huge difference. And so I, I, you can't change someone's relationship. And if they've never had that space where they can talk like that. It's going to be a really hard space to navigate now. But I always tell patients, it's so very critical at this point, making sure that your partner understands the changes that you're going through and the things that you might need to have a really good quality um, relationship or intimacy going forward. Yeah. And how would you recommend people go about breaking down that awkwardness that might surround having these conversations, especially if you haven't talked about it before? Right. Um, I think it might be something like, you know, maybe a woman can send um, her partner a little bit of information about sexuality and the menopause. Um, that might, you know, be one little kind of broken barrier there that maybe they can just kind of take a look at that and they're like, oh, OK, this is what she's talking about. Um, maybe even um, looking at uh, talking to a, a sex counselor. Uh, that's a very interesting thing. And I find that there's more and more these days. Uh, people who are really comfortable discussing um, sex and changes with age and looking at different ways to express intimacy. Uh, so sometimes you might not be comfortable speaking to your partner about it, but maybe saying, hey, do you want to go and see someone talk to about sex? You know, and they might be like, oh, that might be interesting. So <laughs> um, that might be a, a really good way to break that barrier. So um, once again, it goes back to resources. I find that there's so many things out there that make it a little bit easier to break down those barriers or have those like awkward conversations. Yeah, amazing. Um, and my next question for you is, what strategies can women use to cultivate a positive body image and self-acceptance during this time? Ooh, that's a hard one. It's like, oh, that's one. That's, it goes towards like literally everything about... Um, femininity and what you see in the media. And I think the problem is, is we're still all 
um, programmed to think that you have to be, you know, 50 kgs and, you know, five foot seven at all times of your life based on what the models look like. Yeah. And so I think that is the problem um, that we all have uh, as women is that we see these body images that we're held accountable to. And realistically, that's not normally what most women look like. And so I think understanding that your body does change and embracing that. And I know it sounds very easy, but it's the truth. And if you look at it during menopause, the way the hormones work is it causes this fat to be redistributed to your midsection. And so when you look at the biology of it, it totally makes sense. And I think having patients understand that makes them feel better. Like, oh, like this is what my body is meant to do. So they're not like feeling like they're doing something wrong. And I think that's where a lot of patients come to me from is like, something's wrong. I'm putting more weight on in my midsection. I'm in my 50s. What's wrong with me? I'm, I'm exercising, I'm dieting and everything. But I think the problem is, is they're looking at that standard, trying to go back to 50 kgs and five foot seven. And that's not a realistic state for most women in that menopause transition. So understanding the biology around it, um, embracing that change and understanding this is uh, this is natural part of what the body is supposed to change and transition to. Um, and also surrounding yourself with other people that have body positivity. Um, you know, not it's not about the shame of not looking like, the, you know, the model on the TV. It's about embracing the fact that you are healthy and healthy might look a different way than what you see on the magazine. A hundred percent. And I feel like social media plays a big part in this as well. And you do see celebrities in their fifties who look a lot different to what yes. your regular yes. woman might look like at that age. Yes. And it's so yes. hard to not compare yourself to that. Yes, it is. It is so hard. Like, that's why it's such a difficult question. Like how long is a ball of string? We're all looking at these <laughs> like images and we're constantly bombarded by them now. And it's so much harder, I think, than once again, 50 years ago when we just had, you know, magazines, you know, not a lot of people had TV and models and stuff, but now we have YouTube and Instagram and Facebook and you just constantly being bombarded with these images of, you know, perfection or what's supposed to be perfection. And it just really creates this, yeah, it creates this unnecessary stress, I think, for a lot of us. So I think it's really about surrounding yourself with body positivity and people that have more realistic goals as far as what health and well-being is. Yeah, for sure. And would you say this is even a part of resilience, like the ability to cultivate, I guess, like a toolkit of things that only lift you up as opposed to bringing you down? Is Exactly. Form? powering through these times. Exactly. I think that um, there's different, I guess, parts of resilience. So there's resilience and a wellness. So I think once again, making sure that like, you know, you have the discussion with your GP, like, you know, look, my cholesterol is great. My blood pressure is great. Um, yeah, my BMI might be, you know, a bit higher, but I'm doing all the good things. I'm, you know, trying to eat very healthy. I'm, you know, doing regular walks. Um, you know, I'm getting really active with my friends and family and, and having a lot of positivity around that and saying, you know, you are doing good. You are doing really great with your health and wellness. And that, I think, is a part of building a really good uh, resilience, hearing that positive response about the things that you're doing that are so good for you. Um, that's a really good way of framing it rather than being like, oh, yeah, I'm unhealthy and I'm not as small as her. I think it's just really about framing that and then having the power to say, you know what? I'm doing it the best I can. And I'm as healthy as I'm going to be. This is great. I'm still going to try to do better. Yeah, I love that outlook. I feel like so many people should adopt that. And I feel like it is easier said than done at the end of the day. It's so much easier to look at what you don't have as opposed to what you do have. Yes, it is. And how would you say we can even use social media or, you know, the internet and like our access to magazines and things that show us other people's lives as a way of being positive during this time? I, I think it's all about choosing the ones that um, reflect your values and what's important to you. So like, for example, if I follow a YouTuber, I would prefer it be someone that has the same types of values and goals that I do. So I'm not going to necessarily look at the Sports Illustrated swimsuit model because that's not me. Yeah. Um, I would prefer to follow someone that has, you know, the same type of lifestyle values and goals that I do. So it might not be someone who's perfect in the eyes of what society says, but it's someone that I feel 
that I would actually have a lot in common with and that we could actually be friends in real life. And I think that also removes a lot of the stress because I'm not constantly holding myself to a standard that I can't realistically attain. Um, and it also makes me feel good. Like there's other people out there that look like me and are, you know, are struggling like me, you know, and are, are trying to do really well and, you know, are still interested in, you know, health and wellness and beauty and that type of thing. So I think it's about finding that toolkit of things that, um, yeah, that, that you reflect and you see yourself in. So I think that helps a lot too. Yeah, beautiful. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, I'd love to jump into our next section, which is our practices, habits, experiment debrief. So I'm just going to ask you some more personal questions about how you deal with this in your life or any age related um, challenges. So is there a practice that you recommend to help deal with age related challenges that you might use as well? Um. Actually, yes. So uh, this is kind of old school, but for me, I think that um, navigating kind of like the brain fog and some of the like um, kind of stressors that go with life and the changes that you have in your brain with the menopause transition is I find defaulting to writing things down and having just like an old school like calendar planner kind of thing has been a really good way for me to kind of um, de-stress as far as the forgetfulness and the brain fog and those types of things, actually writing things down and being very mindful about what I'm writing down has been really helpful for me. It's almost like journaling, but not. I'm like just like jotting things down, but it just makes me feel, I don't know, it just gives me a sense of fulfillment when I do that. But it also allows me to be able to look back on things and I feel like, oh yeah, I totally remember I did that. You know, so um, I, I like that. It just makes me feel better. And so I just kind of encourage people to find things that are going to give them this moment of peace and kind of zen in the day that they can kind of do as a habit. Um, finding a really good personal private habit is a really good way of like um, de-stressing. Yeah, amazing. I feel like getting a pen to paper always makes things feel better and I feel like it does you feel a bit more accomplished as well when you're writing yes. things down and it can also be like a great way to just de-stress and reflect a bit as well yes it does amazing and do you have a specific time of day that you do this or do you schedule it in at all so I wish I could say I scheduled it. And I think the problem is is being um, a doctor makes it a little bit weird sometimes as far as trying to uh, carve out hours. Um, but I usually do like to do mine at the end of the day when everyone is asleep and things are all finished for the day. Rather than get on my phone, I like to try to actually get in the journal and just like write down. I literally write down what happened during the day. Uh, and I just find it's really good for remembering some of the good stuff that's happened and things that didn't go that well that I really want to work on, uh, making little notes about things I would like to accomplish the next day. I think that like works really well for me. And I know some people are like early morning people, but like most, I guess, busy, you know, working moms, my mornings are chaotic. So that would be a terrible time to try to do it. But yeah, the end of the day is a good time for me. Yeah. And do you have any challenges that you face during this? Uh, yeah, I think once again, I am definitely not perfect. I talk about all these wonderful things that people should do for their lifestyle and habits. But, you know, some days I do forget and some days I check my email instead of getting on my um, my journal or whatever. So I, I definitely don't want to make it seem like, oh, I'm perfect. And I do this every single day. In fact, I just look back at my journal. I didn't write for like two and a half days. So I was like, whoops, forgot. <laughs> but um, I just I try and I, you know, I forgive myself, give myself grace. Like I, I didn't write for two and a half days definitely going to write tonight. So I think it's about giving yourself grace and making sure that you understand that. Yeah. Sometimes you mess up. Sometimes life changes, get a little bit busy. You just try again next day. Yeah. I feel like the whole idea of giving yourself grace is so beautiful and something we don't do enough. I feel like it's easy to beat yourself up for what you don't do, especially when you're trying to implement a new habit. Um, I'm pretty sure it's something like 60 or 90 days. It like, it takes that amount of time to actually fully like, yes. implement a habit. Yes, it does. It is. Yeah. It's, it is. It's a while. And so I actually, I think I've, I think I've been at this for almost a month now. Um, I had some different things I was doing before, but I kind of feel like this has been a really nice kind of habit because I realize I'm a very analog girl in a digital world. And <laughs> I really like pen and paper and just having a planner, just old school, just, it just makes me feel grounded. So that's, that's my thing. 
Yeah. And I feel like identifying your strengths is awesome as well because you're playing to them and I feel like you're more likely to be successful when you're That's right. doing that the things so you know you're good at. That's so very true. Amazing. Um, and how do you feel like this has impacted your resilience and perception in life having this habit? Um, actually, I think since I've been doing this, like it's been like a month, I was doing kind of free before. Um, I think it helps me with accountability. And as far as resilience to also, I don't know, it's like an empowerment. It makes me feel like, you know, look, I'm taking charge of something and I'm making something happen. And even though it seems really stupid, like writing something down, but it actually gives me like this accountability, like, okay, I'm going to do this for myself today. And it, it just makes me feel like I've actually pro- finished a promise to myself, you know? So um, yeah, that's, that's how I feel about it though. Yeah. Amazing. And do you have any other practices that you implement at all to help you cope? Um, I do. I like, I like walking and it's, of course, it's a great exercise, but one of the things I promise myself on walks is that I don't do any digital stuff on the walks. Um, so I don't look at emails, I don't text and I don't listen to music or anything. So it's just like pure, like looking at the, you know, sun and the grass and whatever else around me. So just kind of being present in that moment. And I think that's just a really, really nice thing. It just like gets the dopamine flowing. It just makes you feel better that it's just a time. It's just that time just for me and nature. And that's it. And I like that. And uh, that's my other like habit. I do that at least once a day if I can. And if I can't, that's okay. I give myself grace on that too. But when I do do it, I'm very intentional that it's going to be a media free, just me and nature out there walking type of thing. I love that. I feel like it would take so much restraint not to have like your phone with you or listening to music. I'm now, I'm now realizing the amount of things that I do where I require music or my phone or some sort of device. Yep. 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 So no, I, I definitely have done a really good job with the vast majority of my walks. Every so often you're right. The the watch will buzz and it'll be email and I'll look down at it or whatever, but I'm usually very, very, um, I try to be very, very good about like not looking at anything at all while I'm walking. That's so impressive. But thank you for sharing your practices with us. And I hope people find little nuggets here and there that they can use as well. But again, I feel like everyone's different, right? Like this might not work for you. So you have to find what works. Exactly. Exactly. That's right. Awesome. So let's move into our questions from the audience. So I've got a few here for you. And my first one is, are there any dietary or lifestyle changes that can help ease the symptoms of menopause, specifically the dietary part of this? So that's a very good question. And I'm sure there's lots and lots of studies out there looking at different things. However, right now, there's not anything that's been proven to quote make the menopause transition better. However, I would definitely say that um, obviously healthier lifestyle has been shown to be much better. So uh, once again, um, exercise uh, has been shown to reduce um, the amount of problems with the menopause symptoms. And I know that sounds like random, but it is true. Uh, So women that exercise uh, regularly have been shown to have less symptoms of the menopause transition than women who are sedentary. So when we say exercise, a lot of people hear that and they immediately think CrossFit. I don't have time for that. I can't do that. But that's <laughs> not what we mean when we say exercise. It's literally doing some type of physical activity uh, for at least 30 to 45 minutes, at least um, three to five times a week. And so it's once again, it sounds like a lot. But when you think about it, like, you know, taking a walk around the block can be 30 minutes. And so it doesn't have to be, you know, CrossFit going to a gym membership or anything like that. It's about finding what works for you. So if you like cycling, so be it. If you like swimming, that's awesome. If you like yoga, that's another thing that's been shown to help with a menopause transition. But as far as diet and everything, I would just say to any patient, um, as we get older, our risk of heart disease goes up. And so I would always tell patients, you want to make sure that you try to have a healthier, more balanced diet as we get older. So less of the saturated fatty type of things and more of the healthier choices that are fresh uh, that's definitely going to help. Um, but there's not a specific diet like a Atkins or a, you know, Mediterranean or whatever necessarily that's going to like soothe the symptoms a little bit better than another. Yeah. And I feel like that goes with a lot of things that we try to find answers for. We think there's this one yes. quick fix. So Yes, exactly. It's not, it's a holistic, we're, we're, we are complex organisms. So it's not going to be just one thing will fix everything. 
And uh, we do know that like exercise and physical activity actually helps to release dopamine and things from the brain. So we know that that actually helps with things like persistent pain syndromes and depression um, and menopause. So it's a definitely good thing. It has all these other benefits for all these other ailments. Yeah. And along the lines of exercise, I feel like there's so many different different types of exercises out there. And I feel like it's yes. such an advantage these days to be able yes. to try all these different things. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. A lot of stuff can be done in your home. So it does not require a gym membership, which yes. I do not have one. <laughs> Important to stipulate. You do not need a gym membership. To you be do active. not need one. Awesome. Um, my next question for you is, are there different stages of menopause? Uh, so yes, interesting enough, there is there are studies to kind of break down menopause into different stages. But for our purposes, we usually kind of say like early and late. Um, so you have, of course, um, the perimenopause transition, which is for a woman who is still cycling, so still having menstrual cycles, having some of the symptoms, but not truly menopausal. So once again, the definition of menopause is 12 months with no menstrual cycle. So once a woman has achieved menopause, so they've gone for one year with no menstrual cycle, um, I still feel that um, they still may have symptoms that affect their quality of life. And if that is the case, there's a lot of things that we can offer. But then you have women who are later in menopause where that transition has already happened. And what that means for the body is that your body has gotten used to those new low levels of estrogen. And it's no longer like having urges and needs for those um, for estrogen. So they're less likely to have any of those symptoms any longer. And I usually equate it to telling patients like, this is why, you know, looking back, our grandmas at like 70 and 80 were never like, oh, have hot flashes, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> because at that point, their transition was over and their body yeah. was used to the new lower levels. And there's a lot of interesting like biology that goes into it. But basically what that means for the body and for the mind is that you no longer have a lot of those symptoms specifically around that menopause. So early is like those of us who are within several years of um stopping the cycles or before the cycles actually stop. But then later on, after those symptoms have gone away and now you are, you know, happily and cheerfully going through the last, you know, several decades of your life. So. Amazing. And is this like the same across all women? Like do, this is my personal question now, does every woman experience menopause? So every woman does go through menopause. So um, eventually all of us will stop having cycles at a certain point. But when is very, very different. Uh, for some women, it can be a little bit on the earlier side. So I have some women who stopped menstruating as early as like 45. Um, but then I have some women that are still having periods at 55. So it's a very, very different uh, experience for every woman. Um, as far as symptoms, that's another thing. So symptoms can be very, very severe for some women where it interferes with their quality of life and their interpersonal relationships, uh, whereas other women will go through their transition like beautifully and never even have a problem, might, might not even mention it to anyone. So um, there are percentages out there. So we usually tell patients that around 20% um, of women will have symptoms so severe that it affects their quality of life. Um, so that means about 60% of women uh, or 70% of women will not have any symptoms at all or have very mild to moderate symptoms. So I think it's that 20% that we want to capture. Those are the women that are really being debilitated by those symptoms. And those are the women that I encourage to, you know, speak up and speak out and say, you know, this is affecting me in not a good way. And I want to know ways I can, you know, transition and make this transition easier for myself and people around me. Yeah, again, this is, I guess, where information plays a really great role and the importance of accessing resources that will educate you on what you're going through. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. Amazing. And my next question is, so we've talked about romantic relationships and intimate relationships. What about friends and family? How can they support someone and understand what they're going through during menopause? Um, I think this is the part where it's really important for us to speak up and speak out. We need to destigmatize menopause. And I think that's really important for us as well as for the next generation is that um, as a wife and a mom, um, I think it's my role and also, a, a, you know, a, a employee. I think it's my role to make sure that I tell friends and colleagues and, you know, my partner and my family, you know, what you're going through being really open so that it's not um, something that's considered an embarrassment or a stigma. 
um, later on. Um, I think as far as friends and relationships, I think that's the thing where it's been a really exciting space is that we're seeing so many more women out there forming these wonderful like support groups and friend groups and things like that and having these frank discussions about what you know their menopause transition is like um, and getting a chance to disseminate that information say well you know what um you know my gp recommended i try you know yoga and it's worked wonders for me why don't you come to my yoga class yeah. um, and then we also have people in that space that have created businesses around this um I know of lots of places that are designed for women who are going through that transition. And it's these safe spaces that are places where they can access things like, um, you know, nutritional counseling and uh, yoga and mindfulness and counselors and those types of things, which make it a really nice space that you have all these women coming together, having these conversations, having all these resources, and then being able to go out and say, hey, I have this place, you should go here too. Or, you know, telling other people about the things that they've found have been successful for them. Yeah, it's such a beautiful process as well. I feel like one of my favorite aspects of life is how different experiences can connect you to new people and you form yes. new relationships, yes. find new groups of people to connect with. And it's just so amazing how you connect solely on the base of an experience or an yes. event that you're going through in life. Yeah. It's like um, mother's groups, you know, where you yeah. have, you know, everyone who's due at a certain time, they get together and they have these mother's groups. Um, it's kind of like that, you know, menopause groups. That's what we're doing. Yeah, I love it. I love it. That's so awesome. Um, beautiful. Well, those are all the questions from the audience I have for you. I'd love to jump into our open mic section now. So this is sure. a space for you to talk about anything that you would like to. Um, I think we talked before a little bit about how society is changing. And I think one of the other spaces that we don't talk a lot about is how uh, menopause and motherhood kind of go together, um, especially because more and more women are choosing to have uh, families a little bit older. Um, yeah. And so we're instead of having that quote, traditional um, structure where, you know, you got married at, you know, early 20s, had your first baby in your 20s and you were like truly kids out of the house by the time you were going through that transition. It's very different for some of us. Some of us have very young children and we're going through uh, the menopause transition. And so I think that's a very um, interesting space, uh, a space that I'm in. Uh, we joke about it with some of my friends because I have a really close group of friends that are going through the same type of change as I am. And we all have younger children. And so we joke and say, you know, parenting after 40 is not for the faint of heart. Uh, <laughs> it's in, we're, you know, just in jest, you know, saying, you know, for some of us choosing to have children in our 40s, um, you're literally looking at going through the transition when you have very young school-age children. And so that's a very different space to be in. And I think it's really good that we're being more vocal, getting out there, talking about it more. And once again, having these, you know, mother's groups that now may be mother menopause groups <laughs> that we, we might form. So I think that's a, a really important space to look at. Um, and once again, it's not an embarrassing space to be in, you know? So what, you know, one of my friends has, you know, a six-year-old and she's going through, you know, menopause, you know, that's just the way society is now in some, yeah. in some ways. So, and it's, it's okay. It's, it's making sure that we have um, those ways to find people going through it, to form those bonds, to get out there and talk about it so that somebody else won't feel like they're alone. Mm. And I feel like destigmatizing, you know, women having kids when they're older is so yes. important. I feel like yes. we've got such a negative outlook on women having children when they're older because it's like, oh, you're too old to be having children. You should do this when you're younger. I feel like that's such yeah. a toxic outlook to have. It is. And I think the thing is, is families and the structure of families are changing so very rapidly. We need to have like, you know, we have to be a little bit more open about how family and how we choose to have families. Yeah. And so it's it's going to be, you know, having those different experiences, but also once again, surrounding yourself with um, people in that same type of cohort so that you have, you know, there's strength in numbers and you have, you know, people that you can lean on and you can have these discussions with and like, has this happened to you? And what's it like doing this and that kind of thing? So yeah, for sure. I feel like families and how families look are changing every day. It's no longer just mom and dad and a white picket fence. It's yes. so much more and it comes in so many different shapes and sizes and yes. colors and every possible yes. form you can think of. Exactly. Exactly. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for sharing your experience with us and joining us here today. I've had a lot okay. of fun chatting with you. Oh, thank you so much for your time. I do appreciate it.
No, of course. It's been an absolute pleasure. And for those of us who want to find out a bit more about you, where can we go? So I'm actually on Twitter. Uh, so I'm Autism Doctor Mom on Twitter. And so I'll leave the hashtag there. Um, I find that's a really good, good way of engaging with people there. Um, and as far as um, I guess where I am, I'm, I'm a public doctor right now. So <laughs> unless you come see me publicly for your obstetric or gynecologic issue, <laughs> uh, that's, I think Twitter would be the best way to link in with me. I'm also on LinkedIn too. Sorry, we just froze then. Oh, uh, that's okay. I was just saying um, Twitter is my best handle. So on Twitter, I'm Autism Doctor Mom. Amazing. And for, sorry, I'll redo that. Um, we also have Carmen's details in the description below. So to everyone listening, please don't forget to like and subscribe on whatever platform you're on. And we'll see you guys next time. Thank you. You have been listening to Bouncing Back, the personal resilience science insights podcast produced by the Life Management Science Labs. Listen to episodes from LMSL's 10 Life Management Perspectives on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or other podcasting apps on your smartphone. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel as it helps other people find it and us grow to bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website, pr.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Joanna. Thanks for tuning in.